where the miracle of pregnancy meets the reality of your changing body, where taking care of our kids meets taking care of ourselves, and where the daily frustrations of feeding a family meet establishing lifelong healthy habits. This is The Messy Intersection. Welcome back to The Messy Intersection, everyone. I'm your host, Diana. And this episode that you're about to hear really holds my heart. What I do professionally outside of this podcast is that I operate a private practice where I help families with really anything that's making food stressful in their homes. And one population that I do a lot of work with is children who are very selective eaters. And that's the story that my guest, Jennifer McGurk, is going to share with us today. And interestingly, Jennifer is actually the person who has helped me establish my private practice. That's what she does in her professional life, as you'll hear. So I think it's just a really cool story of women supporting women, which is something I'm all about. I know many of you listening may be worried about your own child's picky or selective eating, and I hope this episode helps to give you some direction on what steps to take to address what's going on and make food less stressful for your family. But Even if your kid is an amazing eater, I hope you'll stick around for a story that's at the heart of what this podcast is all about, which is the struggles we endure as we become mothers and want what's best for our kids without sacrificing what's best for ourselves. So Jennifer McGurk is a registered dietitian whose mission is to help people heal from diets and find peace and balance with their food choices. She is the owner of the private practice Eat With Knowledge in Nyack, New York, and she leads a team of dietitians who are so passionate about helping clients feel fabulous about food. Jennifer is also the CEO of Pursuing Private Practice, a business to support other dietitians to build a private practice and beyond. She has developed courses and programs for dietitians to combine business education, nutrition counseling skills, and accountability to reach their goals. Jennifer is also the host of the Pursuing Private Practice podcast, where she shares the ups and downs of growing a business and features guests to share their own journeys. I've actually been a guest on Jennifer's podcast, which was really fun. So as always, the content on this show is for informational purposes only and not a substitute for professional medical advice. And the views I express are my personal opinions and do not represent the views of my clients or employers. Let's hear from Jennifer. Welcome, Jennifer. Thanks so much for joining me on The Messy Intersection. Thank you, Diana. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for coming on. So I thought we could start if you would just share a little bit about you know who you are and what you do and maybe a little bit about your family. Yes. Oh, I have have so much to say. I love this. I love balancing work and motherhood. So I feel like my journey has two children (laughs) intertwined into it, which is really great. But I started my first business, which is a private practice, Eat With Knowledge, all the way back in 2011. You know, my journey becoming a dietitian was really filled with some horrible stuff. I had an eating disorder in high school and college. It's kind of what led me to become a dietitian in the first place. But once I, you know, long story short, very, very, very long story short, once I recovered from my own eating disorder, I really had a passion to help other people heal their relationship with food and wanted to do more therapeutic work in the field of nutrition. So I had a a job in diabetes at the time and decided to, you know, leave that. I was also moving with my soon to be husband and I started my private practice, which was my first business. And fast forward to having my first son, I slowly realized that I wanted to do more creative work in the field of dietetics with other dietitians. And that's how pursuing private practice was born. 
So pursuing private practice is really what I focus on a lot right now. And that is a business for dietitians that want to build a a business of their own in private practice and beyond. And it has grown so much. And I'm so excited for where that business is going. Yeah. And I'll say I am a member of Jennifer's Pursuing Private Practice and it has been super beneficial to my business. But what I really love about it, it is mostly women in the group, a lot of mothers. And we get questions that'll be like, hey, how did you manage your maternity leave in private practice? And it's just like an awesome community to tap into for those specific questions, which has been really great. And, you know, private practice is is so great for moms who want to have a flexible schedule. So it's been really, really helpful to me. And Jennifer is definitely a mentor of mine. Oh, thank you so much, Diana. <laughs> no, it's it's so great. I feel I feel like I have four kids because I have eat with knowledge. I have my first son, Connor. I have my pursuing private practice, which was really my third baby when you think about it. And then my fourth baby, my real second kid, Aiden, who's almost three. It kind of just went in that order. It was business kid, business kid. <laughs> so it's been awesome to balance both working and, you know, having a family and having the ability to do so, because I feel like there's so many jobs out there that are not family friendly. And I feel like as crazy as entrepreneurship is, and as insane as running a business can be, you know, I really have the ability every single day to like get my kids ready for the day and make sure that one of them is off to school and, you know, pick them up. And that is really awesome to be, you know, in their life like that. What I'm sure we'll get into a little bit is I know a lot of the new moms listening, you have these expectations of motherhood. And the expectation is generally that your baby will be, you know, meet all the milestones and, you know, check all the boxes and not cause you any additional stress in your life. And then (laughs) when expectations meet reality and that doesn't happen, you know, we want what's best for our kids, but it also has a huge impact on our own mental health and, you know, our own stress levels. So before we dive into that, I'd love for you to spend a little bit more time. You mentioned, you know, your past eating disorder and how you now help other people enjoy a healthy relationship with food. So, you know, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say this is something that's really important to you. So prior to actually having your own kids, you were already in private practice for eating disorders. You know, did you have any ideas or hopes of what food and family meals feeding kids would be like in your household? And and what what were your hopes and dreams? And then what actually happened? Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for asking me this question, Diana. This is such a good question. So I feel, okay. So back up a little bit. Yes, I recovered from eating disorder. And at that point, you know, once I was 25, 26 years old, like I had a really good relationship with food. Like it wasn't perfect by any means. I don't think there is such anything as a perfect relationship with food, but I definitely felt really great about all foods fitting and I ate everything. And, you know, for the first time that I could remember, I was, you know, enjoying food again. And I really loved food. I've always been a foodie, but when you have a, like a bad relationship with food, when you have an eating disorder, a lot of times you don't have a great relationship. Even if you are eating something that's really satisfying, you might feel guilty about it or shameful, or there's all these other eating disorder thoughts in your head. But, you know, once I recovered from my eating disorder, I was really in love with food again, I will say. And it was so funny because I had Connor and I even remember telling my sister-in-law, I can't wait to feed my baby. I can't wait for all the baby food. And he even said, I think at the, when I was pregnant, not even having Connor for the first couple of weeks, I think I even said something like, oh, I'm going to make all my own baby food. Oh yeah. <laughs> 
to make sure that my son is getting the healthiest things possible. Little did I know that postpartum would be the most crazy time in my life. I mean, so good. Postpartum is not all negative. I have to say, like I had Connor and like my whole entire world changed. Like the saying that they have that I don't even know who they are, but they say that like your heart lives outside your body when you have your first kid. It's so true. Like you love your children so much. But what I didn't realize was that love came with my life completely changing. And postpartum was really hard for me for a lot of different reasons. I think for the first time in, you know, that five, six years that I had recovered from my eating disorder, my anxiety was super high. I did struggle with postpartum anxiety. I so much more so than postpartum depression, but I know that a lot of people struggle with postpartum depression. For me, it was anxiety. And I slowly realized that I wasn't going to be able to do it all. And for someone that has my personality, strong Enneagram three achiever mindset, I really had to learn how to ask for help. And I had to let go of a lot of things that I had previously thought that I was going to do in my motherhood, like make my own baby food and have a perfectly clean house and get eight hours of sleep a night. You know, some of those things just could not happen, which is totally okay. So when it came down to it, Connor, right off the bat, had a lot of issues breastfeeding. I actually felt very, very guilty stopping breastfeeding at four, I think for him, four months. Yeah. Yeah. It was right before it was right before Thanksgiving. So it was four months. I breastfed for four months. And it was so interesting to me. Like once I stopped, a lot of stuff got better for me. Yeah. Which is so interesting, right? Yeah. yeah. But it's like well, the pressure I, I, that we put on ourselves to days, but yeah. Yeah. So I think that was like my first, I don't want to say insight, but maybe my first insight to like my kids feeding might not look the way that I wanted it to. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> I imagine going into child feeding, you knew about, you know, division of responsibility, being a dietitian, things like, you know, I mean, I know when I became a parent, I was like, it's going to be so easy. I'm just going to implement the division of responsibility and then she'll be an amazing eater, which is not actually what it's designed to do. You know, so as you transitioned to solid foods, you know, what what were you thinking would happen? And then, you know, what actually happened with Connor? Yes. No, well, I, I have so many stories. And looking back, uh, I feel like some of my professional experience actually, I want to say like hurt me in a sense. Hmm. I mean, I don't know if anyone else can relate to that, but I felt like, oh, well, everything will just be fine. I'm going to do everything right. And he's going to turn out okay. Yeah. You know, yeah, like yeah. I just had this attitude around it mm-hmm. that I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. But in reality, my kid... Connor definitely struggled with feeding issues. And I think I picked on it, uh, picked up on it too late, but there is never too late. You know, you can always get help, but it is what it is. It's fine. Like I remember, you know how, so my first gut feeling that something was wrong with Connor and not wrong, like in a sense that there's something wrong with him, but wrong with like the feeding relationship. Do you remember, or do you know all the moms out there that put the first birthday pictures up on Facebook and every kid is like dipping their hand in the icing and eating it and they have icing all over their face. Mm -hmm. That's like the classic first picture. Connor wouldn't touch the cake. And when he did, he freaked out that there was icing on his hand. Yeah. Right. So he has some sensory issues around that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That was my first gut feeling that like, why won't my kid eat the cake? You know, but I didn't really know about sensory things at that point. I just thought, oh, division of responsibility. Like maybe he just doesn't want it. It's fine. But in reality, there is probably something going on there. 
he struggled a lot with sensory things and we were in early intervention, which was so helpful. And I'm so thankful for the services that we got. And he definitely was able to overcome a lot of stuff, not necessarily related to food, but like related to other stuff, like other sensory things. And I'm very, very, very thankful for his school that he went to and for all the help that we got. And it was so amazing. But what I didn't realize was what was normal feeding behavior until my other child was born. Yeah. And it, it is so interesting that this happened with your first kid. And yeah. you know, you've never done this before. You're going along thinking, <laughs> you know, if the kid doesn't want to eat cake, that's totally fine. So, you know, tell us a little bit more after age one, you know, what really tipped you off to thinking that maybe feed, food and feeding were a particular issue for Connor? Yes. So it always kind of back then, it always kind of related back to sensory things and behavior mm-hmm. and just just like some rigid thinking with him. But we were definitely getting the support that we needed. And it was really, really great to see him overcome a lot of things from age one to probably three, three and a couple months is where we were in like a, I don't want to say a good zone, but we were in an okay zone. You know, we were mm-hmm. in an okay zone. Like I, I didn't see as many crazy things as I kind of saw before. But what really got me was when Aiden was born. So Aiden was my second son. He was born and his developmental things and his feeding were just like completely on track. And by age one, he was eating like shellfish pasta. (laughs) He was eating like cooked vegetables. He was eating basically every single food that I was eating because at that point too, I wasn't even following some of the recommendations. I was just kind of giving him whatever because that's yeah. what happens to the second <laughs> yeah, child. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he, he was just eating everything. And it was so funny because at the time, my husband and I were kind of joking around that like we have a foodie baby because he would literally eat anything that we were eating. So, and long story short, we were actually out of our house at that time for his first birthday because we were renovating our house. So we decided to have his quote unquote birthday party at a restaurant because it was a party for us and not a party for him. Again, all second child syndrome, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, all second child syndrome. But basically what happened was Connor freaked out at that birthday party. And when we had probably 15 people at the table and all of the food came at the same time. And that was the moment where he just like freaked out because all the, all the new food at a restaurant was there and it was loud. And like, that was something else that was kind of bothering him too. And that's when I knew I was like, okay, my kid really needs help. And it was so interesting because I fully believe in the Zen mentality and like the karma and the woo of the world. I like to say I'm half woo. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Someone came into our life at that time. Her name is Bryn. She's a feeding therapist. And we had met because of work. And it was so interesting because we met and she said, let me know if I can help you with any of the referrals that you have in your practice. And I basically said to her, like, Bryn, we see so many teenagers. You know, we see a lot of eating disorders. Yes, we see our fit in our practice, but you know, we don't really see kids this young. It's just not something that we specialize in. Like we really, you know, focus on older children. But I said to her, but I'm wondering if you would see me. (laughs) (laughs) 
client because I have a son who I think would really, really benefit from feeding therapy. And that was the week after Aiden's birthday party. And it all came together. This was two years ago. It all just came together. And I'm telling you, Bryn was a godsend for our family. And we really got so much help with SOS. We got feeding therapy. And I learned so much, not only about Connor, but also about the practice of feeding therapy and how dietitians can play such an awesome role in feeding therapy for kids with extreme picky eating. Yeah. So before we dive into, you know, what kind of therapy Connor did and, and, you know, what the results were, I'd love for you to share, like, you know, without having that person in your life, you know, were you aware of what feeding therapy was? You know, I get clients sometimes who are like, is there like a doctor for food? Like my kid struggles with food and, you know, it's not necessarily something that is on every parent's radar that there is, you know, feeding therapy available, multiple styles of feeding therapy available. And you can can go through a process of finding what's best for you. So like, you know, it sounds really serendipitous that you had this friend and colleague, but like, you know, it's, it also sounds like for the first, you know, couple years of his life, this wasn't even on your radar. Yeah. So Early intervention, so I don't want to say it wasn't on my radar, but mm-hmm. early intervention did provide a little bit. Like we had a speech therapist for Connor, and she kind of had mentioned feeding therapy a little bit, but she, I don't think she was the right match for our family because she didn't go into as many details mm-hmm. as what Bryn had done and definitely was not SOS feeding mm-hmm. therapy for sure. So I knew about it, but I didn't actually get the treatment that I feel like our family needed at the time. And I kind of compare it to a dietitian and eating disorders. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you can see any dietitian that might know a little bit about eating disorders, but is that really going to help you? You might need a specialist and not to say dietitians can't learn and specialize in eating disorders, but it is something that I felt like hit our family. Like we got a little bit of help in that area, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't the right support that we needed. Like we needed a weekly session every single week of SOS feeding therapy. That's what really worked for us. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into what SOS is. It stands for sequential oral sensory feeding therapy. And I've been really lucky to actually have trained in this method. I did a a four-day seminar. I was one of three dietitians in a room of probably 200 people. So it is mostly occupational therapists and speech-language pathologists who actually are the feeding therapists, but then dietitians can play a role, certainly in advising, you know, on the quality of the the child's diet. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about, you know, how SOS worked for Connor and maybe even give us like a benchmark of like, you know, how many foods did he accept? at the time and, you know, what what were they and, you know, what were the sensory properties of those foods and like, how did he grow from doing the therapy? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's so awesome to look back, although it is a little scary, like I'm not going to (laughs) lie to look back to see where he was because he had a very, very, very limited amount of foods that he liked. And really we did not venture off from some of those certain preferences with textures and tastes and flavors and things like that. But now two years into this, it's really awesome. So I'm so, so happy that he has grown so much in his own, I guess, I don't want to say acceptance because we're not really at acceptance for a lot of the things yet, but in his, you know, ability to work with in the model. I just remember the aha moment that I had. I think I always had heard that it takes 20 different exposures for someone to like something. And that was kind of always in the back of my head. And I remember when Bryn said, but there's 20 phases of 
actually like climbing up the ladder Mm -hmm. of someone's ability to interact with the food. Like it starts with even being able to be in the room with the food. And I said, oh my gosh, yeah, right. But that's (laughs) actually very true. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Very, very true. And it, you know, you work up the ladder in terms of sensory. I mean, you know better than me, Diana, (laughs) but like how you interact with the actual foods, which was so interesting. And I feel like I knew, I knew about this from an RFID point of view for teenagers. Mm -hmm. But what I didn't realize is that the developmental differences between teenagers and little kids are extremely different. And with SOS, they focus a lot on play therapy, not to say that teenagers can't benefit from that, but it was a really amazing experience to, you know, be in the SOS model that, you know, to see progress, like, of course, it's your own child. So you're so happy about that. Mm -hmm. But to see progress not only from a family perspective, but from a clinical perspective too. Yeah, I saw it really work. So I'm just going to point out that ARFID is avoidant restrictive food intake yes. disorder, and it is it is an eating disorder classified, you know, similarly to anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and we're not talking about that necessarily for your son. Is that right? No, no, no. Yeah, right. Connor does not have ARFID. Right. No, right. But you have worked with clients with ARFID in the past teenagers yes. mostly. So- Yes, I know. This might be a little confusing because <laughs> I am coming on here as a professional and a parent, which right, is right. But <laughs> very really, weird to be in this situation. <laughs> I, I wanted your perspective in particular because of that, because I know you're bringing an eye to it of you know knowing the value of having a healthy relationship with food from the get-go. And you know what did you in particular notice as the things that were off? And you know what steps did you take in order to correct this at a young age? so that your family can preserve that healthy relationship with food to the best degree that you can. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I know. It's so interesting. I will be very honest with you. A couple things happened and some happened to me, some happened to, you know, my philosophy. I do think that having a kid with a feeding issue, I had a little bit of a bias with it in both directions. Like I saw my clients really, really struggling at age 12, 13, 14. And at the time I was practicing a lot more with individual one-on-one nutrition counseling clients than I am right now, just because pursuing private practice has really grown so much. I just don't have enough hours in the day. But when it comes down to it, I saw my 12 year old, 13, 14 year old clients like really struggling. And all they kept on saying was, I've been like this forever. I've been like this forever. I've been like this forever. So I almost had a bias that I have to get my son help right now because I could see him growing into a client with RFID. I could see him having even more issues in the future. But at the same time, that bias, I think part of me, I don't want to say overreacted because that's not the right word, but I think part of me maybe like brought a little bit more drama to the situation hmm. than what it needed. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Like I, I I just am in a weird position as a professional seeing my son have a problem and I have a bias that I can't get rid of. You know, well, like I have I know exactly bias. what you're talking about because that's exactly <laughs> how I felt when my daughter was diagnosed with food allergies. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm a dietitian. I can handle this. We're going to do this, this, and this. And, you know, I, I really didn't necessarily allow myself the time to process what a stress it was for my family. I went straight to like, I have the skills to handle this. And, you know, in, instead of like, I, w- I honestly wish that I would have consulted another dietitian with, you know, experience in meal planning for food allergies, because I did not have a baseline for that at the time. And, you know, I, I just hated 
the idea that food could be a scary thing in my house because I, you know, I'm a person who's always enjoyed a healthy relationship with food. That is the absolute foundation of my practice is helping families enjoy that and, and cultivate it. And, you know, when I noticed that something was, you know, going wrong there, it was like alarm bells going off in my head. But at the same time, it was like, no, I can handle this. I, you know, I have the skills to handle this. So that leads me to my next question. Like talk a little bit about your mental space and, you know, were you getting the support that you needed and, you yeah. know, you know, how did this impact um, your family as a whole? Yeah. I have to say, I'm so thankful for Bren. I don't, I don't know where I would be without her to this day. Mm-hmm. I feel like she helped our family so much, which is so awesome. So, so for me, you know, as someone that has struggled with anxiety my whole entire life, I definitely think that I needed to take a step back I needed to say like, this is going to be okay one step at a time. But like you said, process the situation. Like it's okay if your kid is struggling. It's okay if you're not doing everything that you're supposed to. It's okay if you don't have, you know, (laughs) all the tools Mm -hmm. at once. It's okay. So I think processing and finding other people that have been through the situation was definitely a big help for me. I know too, Bryn also gave us so many resources. Like, so I feel like I had a little bit of a job every single week, but also too, one thing that I think also really helped is that she treated me like a parent. She knew Mm -hmm. that I was a professional, but she treated me like I knew nothing. (laughs) And she told me that she was like, I know, you know this, but I'm going to actually tell you it. Like you don't know anything. So just to make sure I cover my basis, which I thought was actually really, really helpful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because you want to be able to step away from your professional role and, you know, mm. just, you know, get the same services that everyone else is. So I'd love to chat a little bit more about SOS itself. I know when I took the training and was one of, you know, the three dietitians in the room, my one of my first thoughts was like, wait a second, I'm in the wrong profession. I need to go back to school and be an OT because I need, <laughs> that looks like so much fun. <laughs> And, you know, I love having fun with food. And, you know, I want to be the one because dietitians really aren't the ones that do the therapy. I want to be the one in the room building a pirate ship out of pretzels. And I know. (laughs) (laughs) So, So tell us a little bit about Connor's experience. Yeah. Well, so it's so funny. He is such a guy that loves to build, loves to create, loves sports, activities, art, you know, he just loves to have fun, which is so helpful for SOS because I feel like that's all we do in our sessions. Like it's meant to be fun. So that was the number one thing I think Bryn taught us like family taught our family is that, you know, when kids with sensory issues, with feeding issues, whatever it may be, when they get in front of food, you know, their system is so dysregulated sometimes that they get in front of food and it's like this big, huge, scary thing. So you're looking, I'm just going to use your example of pretzels. Like you're looking at a pretzel and saying that pretzel looks delicious. I'm going to eat it. Like they're looking at a pretzel, like that pretzel is the scariest thing in the world. So you have to start and work your way up to having fun with a lot of foods. So our experience with SOS has been incredibly rewarding in the sense that food is now a positive thing in our house. Like granted, I don't want to paint a picture like this solved everything. Like my son is still extremely picky, but there's no negativity around it anymore. Mm. Like if he doesn't want something, he's like, I want that. And you know, sometimes we'll throw it. That's a behavior thing, not a food thing, but (laughs) that's, you know, another issue for another day. But basically like there's no negativity anymore, which is such a blessing for our house. 
Yeah. And I think it's important to point out that, you know, SOS isn't the only model of feeding therapy. And mm-hmm. some models are are not based on, you know, fun and positivity. Some models are more, you know, force feeding, you know, there's, there's, I don't want to get into this too much, because it's not my professional expertise. But you know, there's a school of thought that you know, if we're really going to do this in a sustainable way, we need to do it in a positive way. And we can't, mm-hmm. you know, disrupt the child's relationship with food by either force feeding or even like some of them are just bribing, like, you know, take a bite, get a toy, take a bite, get a toy. And to me, that reminds me of the kind of work that I do with parents of picky eaters, where there is no take a bite, get a dessert, there is no reward in terms of you actually choosing to take the bite, you're the one who chooses to take the bite. And that in itself, yeah. it's its own reward. And I feel like with SOS, it puts a lot more of the power back on the child because they're never forced into anything. Yeah. Yeah. It did actually treat, it did teach me a lot about the way I treat eating disorders too, because mm. it gave me another glimpse into another feeding realm. And granted, most of our clients with eating disorders are not five, six years old, like they are older it did have me question some of the things that I've learned in the sense of, well, I wonder, you know, if this positive aspect of feeding is going really well and I see it working for a lot of people. Like, I wonder why sometimes we do force people into eating if they have an eating disorder. It's a, it's a question I do not have the answer for, to be honest mm-hmm. with you, even as someone that I consider myself an eating disorders expert, I think it just depends on the person, like it depends on the individual. But it did give me a lot to think about. Yeah, I, I agree. And as, as someone who myself is learning more about treating eat, eating disorders, that has been a challenge for me because in the work that I do with parents of children without a diagnosed eating disorder, there was no forcing of food, which yeah. is really to preserve that positive relationship. So yeah, it's definitely a challenging area. I, I'd love to know more about, you know, it, so is Connor still doing SOS or mm-hmm. how do you graduate? Yeah. Yes, okay. Yep. So what, do, but since he's made so much progress, what does like what does dinner time look like in your house? Also, you know, given that your younger son, you know, your 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 foodie son, you know, and I, I, know. I imagine well, he doesn't. Well, one thing I will say, at one year old, he was eating everything. At three years old, he is not eating oh, everything. Yeah. Very common. <laughs> very very common. <laughs> but the thing the thing about it is is that as Aiden has grown, I feel like you know, of course, second child, I feel like oh well, I messed up with the first one, but I don't have to mess up with the second yeah. one because I know what's going on. Yeah. So I feel like I've de- I've preserved. I think maybe is the right word. Like Aiden's relationship with food mm-hmm. a lot better than Connor's mm-hmm. relationship with food, just because I know better now and yeah. I do better. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So how does it work? How does a child with extreme picky eating who is having success in feeding therapy, how does that work with the division of responsibility in your household? And I'll just remind uh, the audience real quick is that division of responsibility is is a very well-established principle of child feeding in which the parents choose the food, choose when it will be served and where, but it is the child's full responsibility to choose whether they are going to put that food in their mouths. And if so, how much of the food they are going to eat. So how how does that work in your family? So we still, so I know in SO, this, I correct me if I'm wrong. You have a learning plate for like a mm-hmm. period of time. And then typically the learning plate might go away. Yeah. And like the plate in front of you is the plate for dinner. Yeah. But what has worked really, really well with our family is we still have a learning plate, like even mm-hmm. two years into this, yeah. I don't see the learning plate going away anytime soon, <laughs> to be honest with you. The learning plate has been very helpful. Mm-hmm. So with the learning plate, it's like the plate where we, like I might be eating something different. My husband might be eating something different. Aiden might be eating something different and we try to get 
that particular food onto Connor's learning plate a few times a week. We don't do it every single day. And again, that's just right for our family where we are at right now, especially with two adults working full-time jobs in our household with not a lot of extra help. But basically, you know, that's typically what we do. So I and my husband will eat one thing usually. Connor, Aiden will eat another thing usually. Although Aiden is the one that's my non-picky eater. He'll eat a lot more of what my husband and I eat. And Connor has his dinner with a learning plate. And there's really no fighting anymore. There's no negativity. It really is like a positive experience. Granted, I know we don't do things perfectly. It's much better than what it was two years ago. Well, I I love the the grace that you're granting yourself in terms of not doing things perfectly or, oh, we're supposed to do it just like this, but what works better for us is doing it like this. Like, I think that's that's really important for your mental health. Okay. One thing that I have learned, (laughs) which I will say on this podcast so publicly, I want to shout this from the rooftops, is that self-care is the most important thing that you can give yourself as a parent. And right now it's been an extremely busy season for our family, as is true for probably every single family out there because of COVID and what's happened to our world has been completely turned upside down that I know if I tried to do everything perfect seven days a week and said, like, I have to do this learning plate. I have to do this. I do that. Like dinner's going to be an hour. There's no way it's going to get done. And that's going to create this I don't want to say shame response because it wouldn't create a shame response, but it's going to create this response in me that's like, oh, I'm not doing it again. Like, I'd rather commit to what I know I can do. That is my act of self-care. Yeah, definitely. And that is actually a strategy I use with my clients in terms of, you know, I don't prescribe like, well, you need to start doing this, this, and this. I, you know, slide over a list of things that we could work on and I say, what feels manageable? And and of that, how how often can can you implement it? Okay, let's start there. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Well, so as we wrap up, I'd love for you to chat just a little bit to give our audience some practical tips. If they're listening to this and they're just like you were, you know, when when Connor was around one year old, maybe not sure if there is an issue. What are some signs that parents can look out for in terms of whether their kid might have a feeding issue and whether feeding therapy might be beneficial for them? Yeah, well, I, I would say get an assessment. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with getting an assessment. I mean, I feel like looking back, I wish I would have gotten an assessment earlier, Hmm. you know? Yeah. So, you know, Connor was four when we started SOS. I wish I would have started SOS at two and a half. Yeah. Looking back. Right. So I would say the number one piece of advice I would have was really just go get that assessment, like see if there's anything there. Like one assessment is not a commitment whatsoever, Mm -hmm. but that phone call is probably the hardest thing that you'll do. Mm -hmm. Like what comes after is a lot easier. Yeah. And so what this brings to mind for me, so I work with some feeding therapy clinics in my area. None of them have a dietitian on staff. So I just sort of like consult with the various clinics. And I know that with COVID, it's been really challenging for them. Like I can't imagine anything more challenging than trying to, with masks on, like get food near a child. You know, it's, that that is pretty challenging. I know that they're doing great work with that. But a lot of what SOS is based on is this food chaining method. And there's a, a book mm-hmm. called Food Chaining that I'll, I'll put a link to in the show notes. And that takes the first of all, if you think your kid might have an issue with, with feeding, grab food chaining, read it. It takes you through what each professional, each of the five members of a complete feeding team would do. And those members are dietitian, occupational therapist, SLP, pediatrician, and child psychologist. And the book actually recommends that the dietitian consult be the first, you know, if 
if you're just not sure where to go with this, first reach out to the dietitian because that person is going to be able to do a full assessment of, you know, whether you're, this is really interfering with your child, your child's nutrient intake mm-hmm. and then can make an appropriate referral to a feeding clinic. But what's really great about what dietitians are able to do right now is that can be done 100% virtually. So if you yeah. are not ready to have another professional all up in your child's mouth, you're not even sure if it's necessary, start with a dietitian consult, which can be done virtually. And that person will likely tell you if you know this is a case where you a feeding therapy assessment would be beneficial. That's awesome. That's great advice. Yeah. Don't reach out to me, reach out to Diane. (laughs) (laughs) I'll put a link to that too. (laughs) Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. You know, you've mentioned your business a couple of times. I'm sure we have some dietitians in the audience. Where can listeners learn more about you? Yeah. So I, my whole entire online presence is meant for dietitians. I do have a group practice that is local, but our local practice is really that it is local in Nyack, Mm -hmm. New York, but pursuing private practice was born to empower dietitian business owners. And it is growing so much, which is so exciting. So we have courses and a membership called dietitian business school that opens up a couple times a year. And it really is all about growing a private practice and beyond. So full of group supervision, business training, support, accountability, so many different things. So you can find me at pursuingprivatepractice.com. Okay. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Your story is going to be really beneficial to, I think, a lot of the moms in the audience. So thanks so much. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode with Jennifer. What our kids eat is something that we all struggle with at some point. I mean, I do this full time and I still struggle with it. And what I've found in my counseling of moms who are concerned with what their kids are eating is that the solution is maybe 25% what goes on the kid's plate and then another 75% of the parent's mindset and the choices and habits that they're bringing into meal times, and even perhaps some of the parent's own issues with food that they're bringing into the situation. You know, if, the, if it turns out that the child needs feeding therapy, that's another element as well. But I just wanted to take some time here to share how to get in touch with me if you're concerned about what your kid is eating, or maybe if you're concerned about your own mentality around food, that it's not in a great place and you'd like to make a change, both for your own benefit and so that you can help your kids grow up to enjoy a healthy relationship with food as well in the way that Jennifer did when she overcame her own eating disorder. So my practice is called Diana K. Rice Nutrition and I'm doing 100% virtual counseling right now thanks to COVID. But that's actually kind of cool because it means that I can help people all over the country and I actually take some insurance plans to make it easier for you. So to find out if working with me would be a good fit for you, I have an easy form you can fill out online and I'll get in touch. You'll find that form linked in the show notes today or you can text HELP, H-E-L-P, to my phone number 405-407-MESS and I will send it right to your phone. And whether or not you'd benefit from nutrition counseling, I hope you'll come hang out in the Messy Intersection Facebook group to find a community of like-minded moms who are stuck in the Messy Intersection right along with you. So there's a link to that in the show notes as well. Thanks for listening today. Until next week, embrace the mess.